0: This episode includes candid talk regarding sexual clergy abuse. Please take care.
1: You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production.
2: There was this time that we were at Mike's office and... We decided that we were going to go out to eat with him. And so he's like, I'm going to go pull up the car. So he pulls up the car right to the front door and we come out and we're getting in. And, you know, when we open the door, the dome light turns on. And so he like takes both of his hands and he like, you know, clamps them over the the light above his head. And he's like, get in, get in, hurry up. And um, he's like, I'm supposed to be in a missions meeting right now. And I skipped out on it to spend time with you guys. I'd rather spend time with you. But, you know, I'm going to get in trouble with the missions board if I'm not there
0: this is Heaven Bend. I'm Tara Jean Stevens.
2: And, you know, we shut the door and we kind of rip out of the parking lot. And, you know, I remember us leaving this little trail of dust behind us and, you know, leaving these people in the dust and we're kind of cracking up laughing, you know, that we jail broke Mike from his missions meeting. And it's just like, again, it's one of those moments where you're just like, duh, like, He shouldn't have been spending time with us. He was covering up the dome light because people shouldn't know. And we just were so honored that he'd rather spend time with us than be in his missions meeting. Just
0: ridiculous. Season 4. Bonus Episode 4. The Jane Doe Story. Thank you for joining me for this ongoing spotlight at the International House of Prayer in Kansas City, Missouri this community remains in crisis since its founding leader was accused of sexual clergy abuse spanning decades. And escalating things in recent days? A pretty major update. We've heard from Mike Bickle himself for the first time. On this episode, I want you to hear his personal statement in its entirety. And we will get to that on the back end of this episode. But for now, just know that his statement does involve him admitting to inappropriate behavior and moral failures, but not the, quote, more intense sexual activities that some are suggesting. And that brings us to Jane Doe. If you've been following this story online, you probably know what I'm talking about. If not, let's get into it. And I have not independently verified this story, but in a November 30th article in the Roy's Report, it's an investigative Christian media outlet, a Jane Doe shared that between 1996 and 1999, Mike Bickle used scripture and prophecy to manipulate and sexually abuse her. We're calling her Jane Doe because of her desire to retain her privacy. In the article, Jane Doe says Mike Bickle believed God told him that his wife Diane was going to die and that she would become his new wife. She says he told her this more than 100 times. She also says he isolated her, put her up in an apartment, paid for that apartment, gave her a set of keys to his private office, and had sexual interactions with her that involved everything except intercourse. And if this is true, it started when she was 19, And he was 42.
2: And because of the power differential, it can't be an affair.
0: On this episode, with Jane Doe's blessing, one of her closest friends at the time is here to bolster her story by sharing her own, recalling her experience of that time and expressing her personal opinions on the matter. Like Jane Doe, she wants to remain anonymous and has asked that I refer to her as JL. She was 22 at the time this story begins. And let's be clear too, she does not consider herself to be Mike's victim, but she does consider herself to be a first-hand witness to the alleged grooming of her friend Jane Doe. So this is JL.
2: I suppose if I had to label myself, which I really don't care for labels very much, I would be considered a Bible-believing, charismatic Christian.
0: And Jael's story, Jane's story, this happened a few years before IHOP, when Mike was still leading a large Kansas City church, which over the years went by a bunch of different names.
2: In the early 90s, I came to Metro Vineyard Fellowship, which was, I think, the third or fourth, maybe fifth, I can't remember, name, rebranding of the church at the time. Spent some time there left for two years and actually came back to do an internship with the ministry that was affiliated with the church. That's where I met and became very close friends with Jane Doe.
0: So Jane Doe arrived in Kansas City in 96. Mike was her father's friend. And she moved to Kansas City because she had been moved by Mike's sermons about King David and how she felt like they knew the same Jesus.
2: If I were to have summarized in one sentence Mike Bickle in my life, I would have said Mike Bickle was my idol. I had never heard a lot of the things that I heard when he preached, and there was a lot of really beautiful things, frankly. So God likes you, lots of Song of Solomon, Book of Romans, Life of David. I mean, for me personally, I could say... I mean, I think all of us, we absolutely, for the most part, idolized this man. He was something larger than life. He lived this really radical lifestyle, and we came because we wanted to give our lives to something bigger than ourselves. I was a very new believer, and for me, this guy had been to heaven twice. I mean, the Archangel Michael had talked to him. It was fascinating, the stories that he could tell, the people he knew, who he was, what he did. I just think that he was this totally other person in my mind at the time. And to spend time with him or have him remember your name or anything like that for us coming in from the outside and joining a part of it was unexplainable, really. When I was in this program, Mike would come in and teach and this and that and hang out with us as a group. And of course, you can imagine just how amazing that is. And so I then got an invitation to begin hanging out with and meeting with Mike through Jane Doe. And what I was told was that we needed to keep it um, on the down low, I guess. And the reason being that, you know, people would be jealous and upset that we were spending time with them. And I thought, well, of course, you know, like, of course they would be. So we started hanging out. We hung out a lot, um, hours and hours. And for me, it was, I had so many questions and so I used to just grill him with questions for hours, and it was everything from theology to people he knew and the prophets and the stories and his own experiences. And so we began meeting at various times and meeting at restaurants, and he'd buy us meals and just spent hours with him, and I just attacked him with questions and was just more and more and more mesmerized, I guess you could say, by the reality that this international leader would Even want to spend time with us. One of those times, though, after we got together, my car had broken down. And so Mike actually gave me a ride. We lived in the same duplexes. And so it's what, like a 12, 15, maybe 17 minute drive from the church to where we lived. And, you know, I remember we had a conversation about the Song of Solomon. We had this conversation about generosity. And and then in the midst of it, um, at the time, it wasn't interesting to me at all, but he asked me what I thought about Jane Doe. And at that moment, um, you know, I was just like, man, she's amazing and she's bold and articulate and, you know, just kind of going off on her and, you know, really not thinking anything of it. So about a week, maybe two weeks later, we're in front of a group of young adults and all of a sudden he just calls me out in front of them and he's like, she is amazing. You know, he's like, she obviously isn't a person who's jealous whatsoever And she's not jealous about her friend and he names her by name and he's like, you know, most people would be, you know, extremely jealous of somebody like this, but she only has good things to say about her and just really like puffed me up and flattered me about the fact that I responded that way about my friend. And, you know, he did that a lot, those types of things, as far as you just always felt like a million bucks. He remembered stuff about you and what you said and who you were and, um, I just felt so good at that moment that he saw that in me, that I was that kind of friend or that kind of person. And there just were a lot of things about him that were masking what was truly going on because the reality is that behind the scenes, I was present for obviously grooming behavior of what was going on behind the scenes. I watched my friend leave a program. I saw her personality drastically change. I saw her isolated and cut off from the rest of us in a way that I just did not understand at the time until now. In the midst of that, Jane Doe received a key to his office and I just find this so interesting to me because I realized that so much of this was really hiding in plain sight for me all of these years because you know I left 22 and a half years ago I think it was from all of this and it's like I had all of these red flags I had all of these things sitting right in front of me like I said like hiding in plain sight, but I had no ability to connect them together to recognize what was going on. In fact, if anyone that I knew told me the story that I'm about to tell you, I think I would have absolutely positively been like, this is outrageous, like something's wrong here. So as we were spending a lot of time together, um, Mike helped me put together a sermon that I was actually preaching. And we'd sit in the booth and he'd just talk about the life of David and Psalm 18 and, you know, just all the different stories. And for about an hour, he just told stories about David's sin, all the different things he had done wrong, and how David was a man after God's heart. And the first and the last thing ever said about David was that he was a man after God's heart. And I'm just like weeping at the Tippins on 71 Highway about a God like that, that I wanted to to be that and experience that. And, And then Mike goes on in this conversation, and he's talking about he's been so immersed in the presence of God and in how much God likes him. He said, I have not felt any guilt or shame about anything, any of my sins in years. And he even said that his wife asked him about it once. And he just said, Yeah, no, I I haven't. And I remember being so impressionable at that time, thinking I want to be so immersed in the presence of God and how God likes me that I never want to feel any guilt or shame ever again about, you know, the things I've done or do wrong or whatever. And It didn't take me too, too many years to recognize that actually I think that guilt when we have done something wrong is actually a gift. And that to essentially say that one doesn't have a conscience, if you will, is um, a very frightening experience to have. So what I watched happen is the following. I remember Jane Doe being a person who really loved Jesus. She was not a person who had, like, compromise in her life, and if you had a sleepover, she wasn't talking about stuff she shouldn't and those types of things. I mean, we were serious about what we were doing. And she, But she was funny and whimsical and the life of the party and obviously a very beautiful woman, very bold, very articulate. And when she began spending time with Mike... Changes began to happen. And then there was a day that she came in, and I don't know how to explain it any other way than this, but she was a different person in one day. I was watching my dear friend slip between my fingers like sand, and she got very serious, and she was leaving the program. She left, and she left her host family, And she went and lived in this apartment, and it was just really hard to get a lot of time with her. There was some, but it was just like something had dramatically shifted. And so when we got together, I mean, it was conversations about the Bible and Mike and his teachings and those types of things. And um, that's kind of all that it was. And, of course, I was really into those things, so it seemed pretty normal to me at the time.
0: So what was allegedly happening to Jane Doe behind the scenes during this time.
2: I do remember asking Jane Doe questions about things. Um, I just didn't understand why she would live alone in an apartment. And I did know that she was doing a lot of research for Mike and that no one was supposed to know about it, that she was being paid.
0: Jane Doe's story in the Royce Report Also says she was actively receiving prophetic words on her life through this time, which is normal in these charismatic circles. That's worth saying. But Jane Doe says that Mike actually gave her one of the biggest words of her whole life. And it wasn't the one about becoming his wife. One day he told her in front of his wife that she was an Esther and that she would lead thousands of Esters. In the Bible, Esther has her own book after Nehemiah and before Job, and it tells her life story. She's a Jewish woman who, with divine providence, becomes the queen of Persia after the king falls in love with her remarkable beauty and grace. And then she becomes a heroine when she saves her people from destruction. So she's an Esther, and she takes that on about herself and her life. And another notable prophetic word on Jane Doe's life, I've heard this one referred to as the Lady Die word. And it had something to do with Mike maybe connecting the death of Princess Diana in the summer of 97 with this prophecy about his wife Diane dying and Jane Doe replacing her. In fact, shortly after Diana died in Paris, Mike took Jane Doe to Europe as part of his research team and Paris, was their final stop. I have independently verified that this trip happened. It was made up of Jane Doe, four other young women, and one man. The trip was not a secret. But all these years later, even one of Mike's closest confidants at the time, a former Casey pastor himself, a guy named Michael Sullivan, he told the Roy's report that even though he knew that Mike was going on a trip back then, He didn't know that he was taking mostly young women with him. He said if he'd known that detail that he would have intervened. So on the final day of their trip, their final day in Paris, not only is Mike said to have mysteriously disappeared for a long time during the day, that last night he splurged and got them all their own hotel rooms. That night, Jane Doe says he snuck her out to dinner, ordered a couple rounds of cocktails, and later kissed her in an alley. After that, Jane Doe says she blacked out, and the next thing she remembers is waking up in her hotel room, fully clothed and very disoriented. About the
2: Lady Di word. That was a wild moment for me. Because it was one of several moments where it was kind of like the missing puzzle pieces snapping into place. Forming this picture of like, wow. I remember back then, Jane Doe trying to tell me what I now know as part of a Lady Die word. And I now know because of the secrecy that Mike required of her that she didn't share the whole thing. I remember her showing up with the Lady Die book. And now that I have heard the whole story, because she has finally felt free to share it, I recognize very much that moment
0: and what was going on and what was happening. But at the time, JL says she wasn't thinking much of it in the sense of anything being wrong or off, because like Jane Doe, she also valued these intimate moments with Mike and in this world of charismatic Christian leaders, 1997, JL, like her peers, they were also interested in getting the attention of Paul Kane. He's one of the so-called Kansas City prophets and was very much in the picture during Mike's early days of ministry. By most accounts, Paul Kane was an extraordinarily gifted prophet, so gifted, I guess, that for a time... He was a consultant to the CIA's Paranormal Division. And before his death, his life was marred with serious scandals surrounding his self-admitted issues with homosexuality and drinking. And I imagine we're going to get well into Paul Kane's influence on IHOP and Mike in a future episode. But for now, it was just important for JL to share this story with you about the time that she did indeed get a prophetic word from the one and only Paul Kane. Some context, he was coming to preach and do a prophetic session in Kansas City, and JL was bummed to be missing it, because she'd been called to preach in Texas. At the time, she was known to travel and preach and teach as part of a group, but this trip was definitely a special one-off occasion where she was called to preach on her own. And yet, still, She was down about missing this chance to see such an important prophet.
2: To get a word from Paul Kane. you know, in that time and era was like the prophet of, you know, the generations of this season, the greatest one of all. And was just really bummed about not being able to be there. And I had told Mike about it. And so I leave, I go and preach and I come back and I run into Jane Doe and she's like, you would not believe this. You got a word from Paul Kane." So she's got the tape and we use the key to go to the church and get into Mike's office and find a tape player and play this word. So here's the part that's, I guess you could say, interesting to me. In my times of meeting with Mike, I had told him about two different, what I would call, I guess, encounters with the Lord when I was young. I also told him about a desire that I had for a certain ministry. Well, Mike knew that I was not going to be at that conference because I had ran into him and told him I was really bummed I wasn't going to be able to be there. So Paul Kane does all of this ministry. And how it works is they're on the stage, you know, with a microphone and they call somebody out by name and they stand up and they get a prophetic word. Well, in this instance, Paul Kane says, There's a blank, you know, my name here. And I won't embarrass you by having you stand. But, and then he goes into basically telling me through this word, you had these things happen in your early childhood, like these, this intimacy with Jesus. He goes on to say, in my exact words, you want to have a ministry like this person. And then he says, now I'm not trying to give you a controlling word, and he goes in to describe a singleness and a single heart for the Lord. And, you know, if you do end up getting married, you need to be very careful because you need to make sure that this person has a heart for the destitute and has a heart for this ministry. So as we're listening to this word on the tape player in Mike's office, Jane Doe and I, Mike comes and it ensued in us having multiple different conversations about celibacy and what we kind of called it and what it's been called a lot in the IHOP world is like consecration, like extended seasons of consecration. And I leave later on, Go off into my life, get married, have children. And later on in life, I become dear friends through my husband with Paul Kane's former assistant. And I begin sharing my experience and the confusion that has ensued over my life because of that word and certain things not happening and the weight of it that I have carried and how different parts of it have felt Off and wrong and difficult.
0: JL has no evidence that Mike passed personal information about her over to Paul Kane, you know, in order to make her prophetic word more impactful. But before his death, Paul Kane's former assistant told her and others that that was, at times, how Paul Kane worked.
2: And he says at that time, he has now passed, but he says, well, you know that Paul Cain was fed words about people, oftentimes. And some of the words that were given are quote-unquote true, and then some of them were information fed to them by people. And all of these years, I've been able to make peace with that time. At the time, I had thought that Paul knew the exact words I had shared with Mike because of the fact that God like was there and heard me talking and I've come to firmly believe that that was actually information passed along. I find it really interesting that Paul knowing I wouldn't be there was the only one who wasn't called to stand up and I thought that all these years it was kind of about the razzle dazzle and the dinner on a show kind of situation of you know let's feed this guy some words and get some you know, really accurate stuff happening and really woo and wow people. And since these allegations have come out, I just can't help but think about the fact that at the end of this prophetic word was dropped in this thought of consecration and discussions that have ensued about living this set-aside lifestyle of singleness
0: J.L. mentioned there about Paul Kane prefacing her word with how he didn't want to give a controlling word. Those are the kinds of prophecies that many in this world actually look down on. They're the ones where someone might tell you who you're going to marry, who you shouldn't marry, or prophesying when someone will die. And kind of infamously in Mike Bickle's ministry way back, he was confronted about prophetic activity just like that. May I take you for a moment all the way back to 1990, when a fellow Kansas City pastor named Ernie Gruen published an extremely critical report on Mike, who was at the time leading his church Metro Christian Fellowship. And Ernie Gruen was one of the so-called fathers of the charismatic movement in Kansas City. And what happened here shows me that Mike's style of ministry was rubbing some people the wrong way From the very beginning, and rubbed enough that they would make a very public stink about it. And you're about to hear a recording of the sermon Ernie Gruen gave to his congregation about this. You'll also hear him talk about Matthew 18, which is a series of biblical steps found in Matthew chapter 18, a series of steps to follow when you want to confront your Christian brother or sister about sinning against you or someone else.
3: So we went to the Matthew 18 stage where I went to lunch with him, confronted him, and it accomplished nothing. Basically, there's no problem, all smiles. So I jumped at a step, get two or three brothers, and uh, it was a terrible meeting. And uh, He said, to my face, you touched me illegally. And people that touch me illegally, bad things happen to them, things like death. Other people who touch me illegally have died. I could not imagine a worse meeting. I was so upset that I could not even discuss it with my wife for three days I was upset spiritually and emotionally when I told my wife what he had said and how I felt like I'd been threatened with death she said you're kidding he walked out of that room walked down the hall was all smiles and said your husband's were of the neatest men of God I've ever met she said that's why I didn't ask you any questions I assumed you were best friends. So we had a third meeting with all the elders. This meeting, it was just basically all flowers. I'm sorry I said that. Uh, Anything we brought up, it was just, you're right, and smiles, and it was just total surface. Then we went to the aggressive prophetic expansion stage and uh, this is where they begin to prophesy that churches should close and be part of their ministry Uh, they did it three times I can document but actually more than that sermons were preached on how you know when to close a church and then they had a prophet along that said you're to close your church down all become part of KCF I'm getting more and more, how long do I smile and say nothing when the city's being torn up? What's my responsibility to the city? I preach this message. I'll be the dirty dog. Everyone will look down their nose at me and question my motives. But I could care less because I'm obeying God. And somebody has to say something. And it needs to come from senior pastor. And you need to know everything and I know this tape will go all over, but it needs to. It needs to go from the West Coast to the East Coast. So what do you do, keep smiling and say nothing? I mean, that's what my church people ask me. How, what do we say?
0: After that sermon, a 200-something page report was released. You can Google Ernie Gruen report to see it for yourself. And to greatly simplify it, It basically accuses Mike of things like malpractice, preaching false doctrine, and of being intentionally deceptive with his flock. It would turn into an approximately three-year scandal that settled down right before JL arrived for her internship.
2: So I basically was told this guy was jealous. He's completely living a double life. He repented and fully reconciled. And none of that was true, except we learned a few things about how we should really be doing things differently. So there's a whole list of things that they decided they would not be doing anymore that they had been doing, including prophesying deaths, including prophesying marriage. And so apparently those things aren't happening anymore, except right after that, when I'm there with Jane Doe, she is still experiencing that, getting prophecies about how Mike's wife is going to die and that she's going to marry him. What I didn't realize until I read that document is that there are actual multiple churches, multiple men and women, even therapists or counselors that came forward with big concerns about what was happening over there. It wasn't just one man with those types of concerns. And so I think it's worth a read, even if you don't believe, you know, all or, you know, some of it, it really gives a picture behind the scenes of a lot of things that had been going on. Now of note, when I was spending um, time with Mike and we were in the car, I mean, he's pointing out like the church right next door to where Ford Runner is right now, like the whole story about like, that guy doesn't like us and this is why, and, you know, over at Evangel and they don't like us. And so of note to me is that the stories that I was hearing from Mike about why they didn't like us and I got a attitude against these guys the stories that he was sharing as to why they didn't like him or like the church were extremely different than the literal letters that I read in the Ernie Grun report so there just was a lot of inside scoop that we were getting from Mike like no one's supposed to know these things but I'm going to trust them to you and I'm going to share them with you and they weren't even accurate.
0: So back to this period where JL was hanging out with Mike and Jane Doe she says it felt like discipleship to her and that she was highly favored and important and in all this time with them as a trio, that was seven or eight months total. But somewhere along the line, there did come a point where she says Mike told them they had to start being more discreet.
2: So, goodness, um, a group of young adults walked into the restaurant there. And in fact, Jane Doe's brother was one of them. And you could tell that they were a little upset, you know, that somebody was getting time with Mike and that kind of thing. And so not too long after that, Mike was like, you know, we just really can't meet in public anymore and stuff like that. You know, people are getting jealous. And soon after that, an invitation came instead to be a part of a group.
0: So JL remembers this group being made up of mostly young women. But there was one other guy there and an elderly lady whose home they were initially meeting in. And this group, led by Mike, would be together studying the mystics, or even more specifically, bridal mysticism. And let's break this down for everybody, but trust we'll get into bridal mysticism in a deeper and more revealing way in a future episode. So a mystic is someone who claims to obtain transcendence, or unity with God, or perhaps a oneness with the universe. And this can, for example, lead to purported, profound knowledge and states of spiritual ecstasy. And there are mystics in most every religion. So there are Buddhist mystics and texts, Islamic, Jewish, Hindu, but JL says Mike was sticking to just the Christian mystics. And the spiritual practices of your average Christian mystic That would maybe involve things like silent and contemplative prayer, slow meditative reading of sacred texts. It can also involve practices that focus on self-discipline and abstinence, like long periods of solitude and fasting. And that's what a mystic is. That's what mystics are known for. How about the mystics? Now, they are a collection of mystics from the past who have left behind cherished texts that are considered deep and, by some, even dangerous. The very first
2: book that was introduced to this group was to be Bernard of Clairvaux. And I remember very distinctly a time when Jane Doe, Mike, and I were at a restaurant having a meal, just the three of us, and um, we had a lengthy conversation, actually, about Bernard of Clairvaux, and he was recounting a lot of things that he had studied about his life. And one of the main things that sticks out to me right now is that two different times Bernard of Clairvaux went and lived alone, not just like taking a vow of silence with other monks or staying in his room, like lived alone, alone off. And the idea being that everything of the world falls away, everything that you get comfort from and lean into that are merely kind of like crutches in the world to sustain yourself, that you're cut off from all of that and all that's left is Jesus. And so, both times that Bernard of Clairvaux came out of those encounters or times or, you know, prolonged seasons of aloneness, he came out with like deep revelations and he came out with anointing to heal and all these different things. And then went on, if I remember correctly, to found an order of monks. And so, you know, when you put together the fact that then Jane Doe was invited into an apartment alone so that she could enter on that journey herself. I just feel like something smells pretty fishy. I've thought a lot about the fact that the way that the mystics were introduced to us from Mike himself is that they're shark-infested water so There's this narrative that they are fearful or that they are dangerous, but then in the same moment, he's setting himself up as the one who knows how to navigate you through them, who alone has the keys for you. Like, don't do this alone. I'm the one that knows how to take you through them and help you navigate them and create a paradigm from them. And it's this isolating experience, if you will, where he's setting himself up to be the one that interprets them into your life. And I find that deeply upsetting.
0: And now, about this bridal mysticism aspect of this, and not all the mystics leaned into bridal paradigms, but the ones who did, like famous Roman Catholic mystics St. Teresa of Avila and St. John of the Cross... They both wrote of the possibility of a mystic marriage with God.
2: I'm curious what he thought about himself, his special what, knowledge and ability to navigate very young people's minds through these waters whose brains aren't even developed yet. And when you see concepts in there of such deep intimacy and spiritualizing these very murky waters of intimacy of Jesus with the church and how those things can very easily be twisted to manipulate things into something more it's very concerning
0: and what else JL remembers about this mystic study group back then was that they didn't call it a secret But at the same time, they definitely weren't supposed to tell anybody about it.
2: The thought was twofold. One, people will be jealous, you know, and want to be there. And so, you know, we don't want anybody to know about it. But the other thing was that people just don't understand the mystics. And, you know, they just don't understand what we're doing. So I went twice two reasons that I ended up ducking out of the group. And one is that I ended up telling a leader in the ministry that I was in and he was very upset that I was um, in the group and, and didn't want me going. And so that was one reason. And the other was that I was so broke and I couldn't afford the books that we were going to read. And so Mike actually bought me the first book. It was Bernard of Clairvaux, and. He said that he'd buy me all the other ones and it was going to be, you know, I mean, Madame Guyon, St. Uh, Teresa of Avila, um, St. John of the Cross. And it's fascinating to me that many of these young women, even the young man, became the very kind of young foundation for IHOP that would start
0: exactly two years later. So, JL first found out that Mike Bickle was being accused of sexual clergy abuse about six months before the allegations surfaced publicly. This would have been shortly after Jane Doe started sharing her story privately with people close to her. Jane Doe has shared that she was inspired by listening to a podcast about allegations against Bill Cosby. She felt like she had something in common with his alleged victims. So she started telling people close to her. And when JL first heard, even knowing what she knew about what happened back then, she still says it was very shocking. Cognitive
2: dissonance is a real thing. And I never would have thought, I guess, um, anything's possible, but you're like, this can't be. And I mean, I really bought the persona of what this man had created. And now I realize as I have sat in it, I didn't want to believe it, that again, things were hiding in plain sight that I saw, that I experienced, that I went through, that I watched Jane Doe going through, that were not right, that were off, that were obvious. I mean, I saw for years, I mean, you can't live in a city and not meet the masses of people that have come out with levels of pain. You meet amazing people and you meet people with great stories, all that kind of stuff too. But it just seemed like an exceptionally large amount of people who had the same stories and you know, the Deaton cult and there's deaths. And then, the, you know, you hear all these different stories. I mean, I heard them for years. Like there's 10 people living in a house. There's 15 people living in a house. There's people living, four people living in a garage at a house and one on a porch. I mean, just that alone and watching a lot of the poverty in people's lives and those types of things, you you see that, you hear that. And, you know, there's always gonna be people that leave and they're disgruntled and, you know, one or both sides, whatever it is, don't have the relational ability to work things out. However, for many years, I've just watched things happen. And I just thought, this is a large amount of people all with the same stories. What's going on over there? In my mind, I just thought, Mike is so heavenly minded spending all of this time in prayer. He's just not investing in the environment and the relational aspects of what's going on. There's a lot of really good people over there, but there's a lot going on. What is going on over there? When I heard Jane Doe's story, I could not believe the reality that all of this had been in my face, hidden in plain sight. I almost want to just facepalm myself of, How did I not see these odd things? My own experiences and what was happening to me. And it has been the most shocking, grievous. I hope it leads to quite a bit of freedom and healing, actually, now that I can name things and I can understand things and I can put words to the reality of what I saw happen to me what was happening to me, and certainly what happened to Jane Doe.
0: So back on November 30th, this article on Jane Doe comes out in the Roy's report. It does not give Mike Bickle's side of the story, because again, up until recently, Mike had remained completely silent. However, this report does include these emails said to be between Mike Bickle and Jane Doe's husband, Sent on October 9th. This would have been in the final few weeks right before the allegations went public. Um, It's an interesting walk through Mike's mind, I'll say that. And in these emails that really do appear to be from Mike, he tells Jane Doe's husband that to him, her going public with this story would be the greatest betrayal of his life, and one that he believed to be energized by demonic forces. He also suggests that Jane Doe must have misunderstood his prophetic words. I'll just say this. You know, there's, there's people of sound mind in the charismatic movement,
2: and there's a spattering of, of uh, people who are odd or some not of sound mind. And I will say this, Jane Doe was and from all of my recent conversations with her, is a sound mind. And these are very clear deceptions used against her, not a young mind that
0: didn't understand what was going on. In these emails, he also denies ever telling her that his wife Diane would die and she was going to be his new wife. He denies ever saying that to anyone, when in reality... Several women are saying that he said this to them as well, that his wife would die and they would become his new wife. The emails also have him telling Jane Doe's husband that her coming out with this side of the story could be one of the worst decisions of their life, and he pleads with them to instead see what he describes as God's narrative for his life. I've heard multiple
2: times people saying that they don't think that Mike could have sent that email to Jane Doe's husband. And it's it's pretty alarming to me the lengths that people are needing to go to to continually try to ignore the facts and believe Mike. While I understand people don't want to believe that something could be possible of this man, it's worth pointing out that in that email that he talks about things that obviously he only would have known if he would have met alone as we all know with Jane Doe's husband and you know I've heard
0: people say you know that was unhinged that doesn't even sound like Mike listen to the black horse message. Jale's, of course referring back to Mike's final message to IHOP home base we got into it a little bit last episode or a couple episodes ago where back in October, he suddenly stepped away from his planned messaging and instead warned of this black horse that was about to attack, a demonic force that was about to come for him. He preaches an extremely long amount of time, and there's periods of
2: rambling. He looks very distressed, and that man who preached that message tracks very closely to the man who wrote that email.
0: And JL and others are, you know, ongoingly baffled with how he was even allowed to suddenly preach this unhinged message on betrayal. And maybe the executive leadership didn't know the full scope of the allegations, but there's evidence that some of them at least knew a little something of it. So knowing that, how did this happen?
2: They allowed Mike to preach more than one time and go up and defend himself by calling on a prophecy to say that allegations are coming, don't look, don't look, it's Satan. It's because we're praying for Israel and I find it the most wicked situation whatsoever when people are supposed to be shepherding people and caring for them, that they are allowing mass deceptions, mass confusion, mass pain to happen. And so let's just say that they're like, well, maybe he's innocent. Maybe he's not. We'll just let him preach. I can't even wrap my head around that, but let's just say. But I'm sitting there, pastor of a church, and a man takes a microphone and he begins deceiving people and preparing them to kind of buckle up and treat a brave woman coming forward to share her story with suspicion and instead of being a human being that was hurt and destroyed and threatened and manipulated, she's now, you know, this accuser or this Jezebel or this attack from Satan. This woman should have
0: been embraced, loved, believed, kept safe. Thank you so much again to JL for first confiding in me and then trusting me to share her story with all of you and I was actually in the midst of producing this episode when Mike released his public statement so instead of ending here as I'd planned let's hear this statement shall we released on Tuesday December the 12th just over six weeks since the allegations went public I'd like us all to have the chance to hear every word and for that I've asked Kirk Bryson to come back and read the statement for us in full And you might remember Kirk from Season 4, Bonus Episode 2, when he shared his reaction to the allegations alongside his wife, Deborah. He spent a total of about five and a half years at IHOP between 2003 and 2009. And buckle in, here he is with Mike's statement.
1: To my family and friends. With a very heavy heart, I want to express how deeply grieved I am that my past sins have led to so much pain, confusion, and division in the body of Christ in this hour. I sadly admit that 20-plus years ago, I sinned by engaging in inappropriate behavior. My moral failures were real. I am not admitting to the more intense sexual activities that some are suggesting. I hate my sin, and I see it as serious and grievous before a holy God. I take all sins seriously, so on those occasions, I quickly and sincerely repented in a way that resulted in receiving assurance from God, followed by a daily resolve to live holy in all of my ways. God graciously helped me to respond in those times with a broken and contrite heart that was filled with godly sorrow. To this day, I remain sorrowful about those past failures. I am anguished that my past sins have caused great pain for my wife and family along with the IHOPKC family and others. I am deeply sorry that my sin put the IHOPKC leadership and community in a very painful and difficult position. I asked my family for forgiveness. I now ask for forgiveness from the IHOPKC family and many in the body of Christ. Some may wonder why I am just now making a public statement 20 plus years later. It is because I was recently confronted about things that I said or did 20-plus years ago, things I believed were dealt with and under the blood of Jesus. Since this has now become public, I want to repent publicly. On October 28, 2023, I wrote the first draft of this statement, but at that very same time, false allegations of sexual abuse were being circulated against me. I was given legal advice to wait to make my statement public for several important reasons including creating the misunderstanding that I was confessing to the false allegations that were circulating. I am very sorry that it took so long for this personal statement to come out. This delay created additional pain, anguish, division, and more for so many people that I love. I am deeply sorry for this. Since late October, terrible things have been written against me in various communications blogs, articles, posts, etc., that describe me and various sinful things that I allegedly did. There are many misrepresentations of my words and actions in these communications, including statements that are out of context, greatly exaggerated, or blatantly false. I ask that my family and friends do not defend me. I have confidence that the Lord will speak concerning what He sees and says about me in His timing. Please do not engage in debates on social media to defend me, and please do not criticize those who are voicing their disdain for me. Please only speak blessing to them and about them. Matthew 5.44 In this way, we can minimize some of the divisiveness that the enemy has planned, and we can continue to stay focused on loving Jesus and one another. I am deeply committed to respond to those with complaints against me in the spirit of Psalm 18.35 both now and in the years to come. Some who are have spoken against me are friends. I will continue to view them as friends. For an extended season, I will not engage in my public preaching ministry, conferences, social media, zooms, etc. I see this as God's delayed loving discipline on my life, Hebrews 12: 6 and 11. I will look to other leaders to determine how long this season will last. It may be long and it may even be permanent. I will only re-engage in my public preaching ministry if God confirms it through others. I am at peace with whatever he wants, 2 Samuel fifteen twenty-five, twenty-six. 26. Jesus, I love you and trust you. I honor and love the Casey community and will forever be grateful for them. They are a most remarkable people. They are truly marvelous comrades. I know the Lord is with them and that his favor and grace will continue to rest on them. Pray for me, Diane, and my beloved family. They have expressed their love and support for me in extravagant ways. With much sorrow, yet with prayerful confidence in God's perfect leadership, Mike Bickle.